Hello, and welcome back to the Matron Saint of Nightmares podcast. I am the Acolyte. And I am the Matron. Uh, today, we've watched Possessor. Um, I think it's just come out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to try to get a jump on some newer stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, this was on Hulu. Uh, I think it was a Canadian production. Yep. Um, fun. Lots of fun connections because we've recently been watching Letterkenny and. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Letterkenny actress? Yeah. Um, uh, um, oh, God, what's her name? Tannis. Tannis from Letterkenny. Um, and I'm obsessed with Black Mirror. I've seen every Black Mirror episode mm-hmm. a thousand times, except for Crocodile, which the main character in this movie is from Crocodile. Mm-hmm. The reason I haven't watched that one a million times isn't because it's not great. It's because it's traumatic as hell. And I feel like there's a lot of parallels with this movie, actually, in that episode. Um, And if you want a movie that's going to make you question what we're doing floating on a rock in space, this is the one. I am obsessed with it now. I love it. Just watched it. Already in love. And shout out to Sean Bean, who is great at dying. Didn't really die even in this so movie. great. So, so oh yeah. Also, you know, again, spoiler alert. Um, this podcast is uh, talk about the movies in depth. So um, you know. So go watch it. If yeah. you haven't seen it, go watch it now. Yeah, go it's so good. Now. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, let's jump in. What did you think? I, I mean, you. I think in the latter half of the movie, you were just raving about how much you liked it. I was already I'm into glad. it. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I loved the some of the questions that I'm obsessed with, just like not being a therapist but being a human mm-hmm. are like what creates us, like what what defines us as individuals as a right. part of like the human community. What what separates us from mammals and what creates our identity? Mm-hmm. Um I love those questions. I love everything like in mental health that relates to those questions, which is why I do trauma therapy because that's a lot of trauma therapy. And also, um, it really emphasizes the, (laughs) just the, the dichotomy between like our personality or our like quote unquote soul, right? Right. Yeah. Our consciousness Mm -hmm. um, versus our memories and experience. Yeah. Okay. And like what, what kind of differentiates that? Are we ourself if we don't have our memories? Right. Right. Yeah. And who's in control? Are we ourself if we don't have our thoughts? Mm. Um, and I love that. And I also, I feel like um, Tessa, the main character, she is, she was like this in Black Mirror too. She's like great at acting depressed or acting like in this like existential dread kind mm-hmm. of phase. And you notice like from the beginning, something I really appreciated was that she had a lot of physical sem- symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. So she walked slowly, like you could kind of tell in the way she rehearsed how to talk to her family. Mm-hmm. Like, that nothing came naturally for her, and she felt disassociated, right? Which makes sense based on her transplanting her consciousness into someone else's body, right? And so, um, the Hellhound is clearly a fan as well. I think um, that was a beautiful thing, and they did it in a very interesting and unique way Mm -hmm. of trying to reflect that in, like, the little details. And so, initially, she's, like, walking slowly, Mm Her facial expressions are very strained, Mm -hmm. which I really love. Like, she was able to communicate that in a way that wasn't necessarily as direct, I think, as, like, a lot of other films try to make it. Um, And I I really loved that. 
you can just see that she's depressed in her movement. Like you can see in the way that she relates to other people yeah, that she's like okay. not really there. Yeah, when I think about it, it, it I think uh, it wasn't. They never said that, but you could feel it. I, I could feel, feel it, it when you were yes. watching. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I'm. Sure, I think part of the the makeup or whatever mm-hmm. because she was mm-hmm. kind of pale and gone, and um, <coughs> the, the dark circles might, might be stereotypical, but um, it at, at least. Yeah, without them having said that, I, 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 that's what I felt when I watched her performance. At least, you know, in, in, the, in the earlier parts. Well, to be fair, she's in maybe a third of the movie. Right, right. she's the main character, but she's like often living as someone else. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and I, what I loved too was just like the little details about like how she was kind of having flashbacks. So in the beginning, mm-hmm. she imagines that her husband, who she's separated from, she imagined that he has been stabbed in the neck in the same way that she stabbed someone in the neck. Yeah. And I think that that is such a relatable human experience for people who've seen violence. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very common thing. Like sometimes um, we call it disassociation or flashbacks and it can really root someone in an experience that they've had that's separate from reality. So like, I like to think of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. I like to think of it as like a time traveling illness Um, because it's not necessarily a hallucination, but it feels like a hallucination because you have sensory depictions of it. So you see things, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But it's not a hallucination as much as it is a, um, uh, kind of like a time traveling situation. You're seeing things that have already happened transposed on someone else that it didn't happen to. Uh, And that's very, very common. So a lot of times, like when I work with folks, they will say things like, I'm insane, I'm crazy. All I can think about is, you know, what would happen, what my, um, this is when I hear a lot, like what my spouse would look like if their head exploded like the person that I killed Mm -hmm. in combat, right? I know, that's like really heavy. I probably should have had a warning on that. But it's also like that experience, I think, is something that we don't talk about. And I think that's why people think they're crazy is because they have these these situations like she had in the movie where she pictured him being stabbed, right? Yeah, yeah, in the same way that... And it felt real. Yeah, and a lot of people don't understand, like, it's not just a visual hallucination flashbacks, right? Like post-traumatic stress flashbacks. It's... It's also like completely sensory. So it's tactile, you can feel it. And then one thing that I think we don't talk about enough that a lot of my clients talk about is like the what we call olfactory hallucinations, mm-hmm. which is um, a which is scent. And so like one thing I thought about was she was seeing her husband like bleed out when he wasn't really bleeding out. Um, one thing that popped into my head was like she could probably smell the blood. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so it makes it even that har- that much harder to ground yourself in reality when you're having all of your senses tell you that it's actually not that you're not existing in the current time period. Right. That that somehow something that happened in the past is now transposed on your on your present. Got it. And it's really hard to identify that. And so a lot of people don't understand quite how strong those feelings are. So when she's not responding to her husband, when he's trying to talk to her, when she's having the visualization that he's bleeding, um, it's such a beautiful way to communicate something that uh, so many people feel like so many people experience in their lives. Um, and, and I really loved that because I think it was very normalizing in a lot of ways. It was, um, 
it was brutal, but it was very normalizing. Yeah, yeah I um, suppose part of the limitation of a film is that you they can depict visual um, sort of representations of that, but yeah. the, the other of, senses, you know, smell or whatever, it's <laughs> hard to hard to well, it's impossible basically to to communicate that. I'm sure you could maybe visually, but. Um, yeah. And that's something, too, like, I've experienced as an individual with trauma. Like, I think it's hard to explain to someone why you zone out for, like, five minutes and can't hear them. You know what I mean? Or, like, when I was earlier in my trauma treatment. Like, things like that are very difficult. So I thought that was a really great way for them to be able to kind of show that visual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I also loved how, in the beginning, because the whole kind of narrative is that she is working for a like kind of corporate entity that's trying to like what they do is they like put somebody else's consciousness in someone else's body for some sort of corporate espionage Mm -hmm. right or some sort of like um financial gain or strategic gain yeah yeah Um, it's not very clear but yeah with at least this primary job in this movie that's their goal they were hired by somebody who um, wanted to basically take over the company and eliminate everybody in the way. Yeah. And so the guy that she transposes into second, like the the main kind of narrative that we have, is this this man who was a who was uh, formerly like a uh, cocaine distributor. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was in he was in distribution, um, and he fell in love with a rich heiress to this like corporate. Data mining company. Data mining company, right. Um, and that was, I think, really interesting because he had such a, like, a powerful presence despite the fact that he was, like, quote-unquote possessed during right. the time. Um, but he fought it the whole time. Yeah, his consciousness was... His consciousness was still there. Yeah. It was, like, in the background fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved how in at first when they were transposing her consciousness into his... They had this like great visual where like her body was melting away. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was like yeah. a great narrative of like herself is melting away and kind of grafting itself to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that again, like as a therapist, I'm asking all these questions as I'm seeing this, which is like, I know that this character Colin has IBS. I know he's had a lot of stress. I know his cocaine use has increased because that's what we're told. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm thinking, as, as a shrink, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, okay, so his neurotransmitters are depleted and he has a lot of stress in his body. So I'm wondering what kind of impact that has on her consciousness living in that body. Right. Is there any communication, right? right. Does she feel the, the, the difference in neurotransmitters because they, she's using his brain. Right. Right? Because she's able to transplant herself, her consciousness into his, but they never really answer where the host body's consciousness goes, right? And yes, so, and it's there. Yeah. We know it's there, yeah. but we don't really know where right, it is. Right, right. And I think they do a really good job in the movie because they, they kind of use these, uh, not I wouldn't say steampunk, but they yeah. use older-looking technology. You could see a lot of, like, the resistors and yeah. even the dial that they do to calibrate the, the implant. It, it looks like an old metronome mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff, and, like, maybe even a, like, 70s-era type aesthetic yeah. in terms of the technology and one of the questions that i kept asking in the movie too is why don't they give enough background on the people the host people right because yeah and of course we sort of arrived at like 
you're in the host for a very short period of time. And so, you know, maybe the, the background isn't that needed, but there is clunky parts where, um, when, uh, Tessa is implanted into Colin and, um, Colin's girlfriend, Ava is kind of like, you're acting weird. Yeah. You're acting weird. And she makes these comments. Um, and that made me kind of, you know, that was a little confusing for me because I was like, oh, okay, so why don't they have enough background? Are they not worried that, you know, they're going to they're gonna be found out or something like yeah. that? But of course, you know, they probably don't even know this kind of technology exists. Um, so and my other I thought, thought was, was interesting. Yeah. yeah, totally. And I think my other thought, too, was like, it makes sense if they're erratic. It makes sense, like, leading up to a big murder, right? Because right. what they wanted was Colin to be, like... To murder cause suicide. a scene yeah. and then do a murder suicide mm-hmm. and um and that kind of makes sense in that context but yeah I think she kind of flew in blind um and it ultimately too like I ask all of these like I was thinking of this question of um in the beginning Tessa Tessa sees this like one of her like tokens that's supposed to like um that's like a test to see if she knows herself or not or if she's like in her own consciousness is this picture of a butterfly or this like butterfly that she killed and mounted. And initially she says, initially when she is um, like taking the first test, she says, I killed this butterfly, mounted it and I felt guilty for it. And I still feel guilty for it. Mm -hmm. And that to me was like so telling in the context of someone that transposes their consciousness into someone else's brain to commit murder. So she felt guilty about the butterfly. And then at the end, when she was retested, she didn't say anything about the guilt, mm. which I think also was a really like profound kind of narrative about how her consciousness was changed by transposing itself on someone else's, mm. right? So then the question that I think is like ultimately plaguing me about this movie is like, what is her level of culpability, right? Because throughout the whole movie, Colin is fighting her for control mm-hmm. of the body. Yeah. of Colin's body. And so it's, for me, I'm constantly asking myself like, okay, is she in control now? Is she not? And if she is in control, is she really the person doing it? And I think in the end, when she has this conversation with Colin, when Colin has a gun to her husband's head, yeah. they have a very interesting like conversation where she says, it was always you. It was always you doing it. And then she also takes Colin's hand to help him kill her husband. Right? right? And then in the end, when she kills her son, you see it as her killing her son. Right. And so I love the mix up. I love like the constant like question of who's in control, who mm. did these things, right? Like who's ultimately the person that decided to do this. <laughs> and that to me is like such a fundamental question of humanity, because at what point are we in control? At what point are we our environment versus our thoughts versus our consciousness, which is somehow separate from our thoughts? Interesting. You know, so like I'm constantly like this is a question I'm obsessed with and which is why I love the movie. Yeah. It's this question of like at what point are we culpable and at what point do we have control? Because I think such a part of the human experience is I'm a little bit of a determinist philosophically. So what that means is that I kind of think that like ultimately a lot of what happens in our life is determined by our environment determined by our upbringing, by our experiences. And that's one of the reasons why I'm a social worker instead of a psychologist, right? Mm. Because I don't think that, like, necessarily we're all given the same playing field. 
And, but I'm constantly grappling with that because also we have responsibility and we should be held accountable for things that we do to hurt other people. You know what I mean? So it's, so for me, it's this like great human existence, like existential question of like, when are we in control? Like, when are we actually making decisions? Like, when is our consciousness? What makes us an individual? When is that making decisions? Right. You know, versus when are we making decisions based on a response or a trauma response? That's super interesting because the, there was a part in the movie, I forget what part, but I turned to you and I said, so who are we cheering for? Because you were kind of cheering. And, and for me, you know, I, I think I probably think about these things slightly less and because I don't work in it. But, mm-hmm. um, but for me, it was like, I was actually very sympathetic towards Colin. Yeah. Because for me, Tessa just signed up for that job. Totally. And and, and, and she she, you know and, and I think it's still no it but it still actually goes down the path of where you're talking about, right? Like like it could almost be a representation of Colin ultimately not being in control and it's still deterministic, right? Because he is a victim of his circumstances, right? Totally. Because if if it's not this strange sort of shadow company that's doing corporate espionage, right? That could be in the place of other things in our lives, right? Yeah, possesses you or whatever, right? Because possess even is too strong of a word, right? But but the things that influence you, right? And so you could argue that that's Tessa's consciousness influencing Colin, right? Yeah, if you take it out yes. of the 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 technical particularities of this movie, then you could say, well, yeah, Colin was influenced, but it was his body. And and and, and then we talked about this too, right? Because, and because you said, well, I'm cheering for Tessa because Colin's fucked anyway. Yeah, Colin's done. <laughs> yeah. Like his life is, yeah, Tessa's cause, destroyed cause his life. Because at the end of the day, the law is going to come after Colin's mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't matter at oh, the end of the day this. if Colin was like, oh, well, I was possessed technologically by some shadow corporate corporate espionage company, but the the court is going to be like, yeah, but you're the one. (laughs) You're the one with the fingerprint on the gun that killed your fiance. Your your fingerprints were on the, you know, fireplace poker that killed her dad. Yeah. And so, and, and, but the whole time I'm thinking, well, that poor guy's soul (laughs) or his consciousness didn't make those decisions. Yeah. Didn't make those decisions. Right. Um, and so, and that's, but I think that's super fascinating because, and I'm glad you talked, you said your bit first because at the end of the day, whatever I'm saying still proves whatever you're saying. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, I think the sociologist and like bleeding heart in me also wants to say like, yes, like if we're, if we are trying someone, if someone's in the court and we're giving them, I mean, this is. This is also why I love Foucault, right? I think it's like, it's this question right. of like, at what point did they make this decision? So if you look at like, like, what are we punishing? What, what are, are we punishing, punishing people for? <laughs> and why are we punishing them? And at what point do they have like responsibility within what they did? Yeah. Right. So like, what is a criminal? What is a criminal? So like in Les Mis, Les Mis right? Mm-hmm. Like, 
uh, Jean Valjean steals like a loaf of bread for his his starving sister, mm-hmm. and like that is considered like a crime that's punishable basically with his life. Yeah. And so if we take that and tr- that like narrative, right? And we can all look at that narrative and say like, oh, that's terrible that they did that to him or whatever. It seems absurd. Right. But now if we transpose that narrative into like modern day America and ask ourselves like, okay, so if somebody didn't steal a loaf of bread but they were selling crack, right? Yeah. Or if somebody didn't steal a loaf of bread, but they were selling like heroin or whatever, right? Like, or at what point does hurting someone else justify you trying to survive or yeah. you trying to help your family survive? So I think there's a lot of layers to this. And, and then another thing that I think of is something that was really impossible for me not to think of when I was watching this was my clients who controlled drones in combat. Yeah. <laughs> right? So drone possessor. Drone possessor, right? Yeah. So like I've worked with so many clients who control drones and they've done horrible like the drones have done horrible things, but to them like and part of their training is thinking of it as a video game. They even call it when you kill someone and you see like the the remnants of their body, they call it a bug splat. Yeah. Right? Because the whole the whole institution is trying to get you to dehumanize the people that you're going after, right? Whether they be civilians or enemy combatants or whatever. And so something that the military was trying to do was separate the people from the trauma in the idea that it would somehow give them less PTSD. Mm-hmm. Right. Or they would have less of an emotional kind of response. But what we found is, I know, man, what we found is that actually what happened was they felt like they didn't deserve the trauma. They feel Mm -hmm. like when I've worked with them, they felt like, no, it was like a video game. Like, I don't know, man. Like, like, did I, I didn't see them. I saw the pictures of them, but they were like across the world. So at what point? Do I have responsibility for doing what I was commanded to do right. and kill these and fucking even in kids? The, the medium that they were able to exactly, kill them. exactly. So I think like the more we talk about human consciousness too, the more we have to ask the question like, what is our consciousness and like what do we have? agency over in our lives and what are we responsible for? Yeah. And that's like so fascinating to me because ultimately like. We have no idea, and anybody who tells you that they know the answer is full of shit. Because they really, we really don't understand like the mechanism of consciousness. We know, and it's kind of assumed because of like human experience. We know it's separate from your body. Yeah. We know human consciousness is separate from your body, right? right. But we don't really understand what it is. Or, like, if it can be condensed into something. So, like, people in, like, we're in the Bay Area, so people in the Bay Area talk a lot about singularity or trying to upload your consciousness into a greatest consciousness. All of this stuff is, like, fascinating to me. And it fundamentally asks the question that we have been asking since the dawn of time, which is, what the hell are we? And what are we doing here? You know, like, are we a group of mammals that are, like, just trying to survive or is there something in us that's different and individual within the group of humanity? Yeah. And what's the purpose of that? Right. And I love that because so much of my job is talking to people and trying to normalize their crazy thoughts, like quote unquote crazy thoughts, right? Yeah. We have these thoughts that horrify us yeah. and we think like, what kind of person am I to have these thoughts? But ultimately, like the more mental health research we do, the more we realize that the thoughts are actually separate yeah. from your consciousness. Mm-hmm. There's something also that happens to you. Yeah. You don't actually control your thoughts in the way that like 
you intuitively think you do. Right. A lot of times, like, our thoughts are grafted by our experience, by, like, our environment, by what we've seen, what, we, what we've been normalized to, right? And so, what are we apart from that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I don't want to... Well, I don't want to detract too much from this conversation, but mm-hmm. it reminds me a lot of, and I, I don't want to give it away because it's it's a, it's a key thing in the book, but one of my favorite books is Ender's Game. And so for mm-hmm. those that, have you read it before? Mm-mm. Okay. So yeah, I won't say much. I but, need to. Um, for, for those that know, this has a lot of relevance to Ender's Game. Um, and, um, and, and actually, because it's been one of my favorite books since I was like fucking 12. Yeah. Um, and, um. And, and and it's to me it was a cool sci-fi, but there there's a huge element of this movie and, and our conversation just now that that, that that talks a lot about that. So cryptic as fuck, but um, yeah, just shout out to Andrew's game. Yes, I love that. And like I think the movie did something really beautiful with when they had her kind of patching through to Colin's consciousness. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when she would patch through, she'd be wearing the flight attend or the um, hostess's uniform. Right. So the hostess was someone else she possessed. Yeah, that's the first, the first one person that we she see possessed. Movie, yeah. yeah, and I'm sure if we did like if we applied like different theories to this, we would also talk about like a uh, like you know a white person kind of like going into the consciousness of like a black person, mm-hmm. and that kind of has some like Jordan Peele vibes from sure. us or from yeah. um yeah. Well, visually but they did a really good job with a did. lot of things because there's a scene where. Colin, I think it's like in the, the, the consciousness, where well, they're depicting the consciousness, mm-hmm. right? And they, they split off and there's like, you know, it looks like they were connected. And so there's like yes. a, a fracturing or um, eventually when Colin, I think there are moments when Colin has more control, totally. right? Yeah. And when there's that moment where Colin kind of like, I don't know, squeezes uh, Tessa's face in and then wears her face. And that, that's Love a little that. more of a direct... Um, a direct implication that he's in control now, but that I think that that that. But she's there still. Yeah, that she's there still, you know, and and um, and all that, and the, and the final scene too um, of how they they manage to switch things a lot, and because because they use different techniques of oh the the this is the two consciousnesses that that are there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and they're both there fighting for control. Yeah, and. I love that. I think that that was really well done. And it's also kind of like helps the observer ask the question of like, is she herself or is she an amalgamation of everyone that she's possessed? Because can you actually possess someone's body, live in the same space as their own consciousness without getting some of their consciousness infecting your consciousness? And it also begs the question, is your consciousness that has always been in your body, the one that's always in control. Ooh-hoo. Right? I mean, that, 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 that's, that's the complication that we're talking about, right? And yes! The movie's using the very explicit idea mm. that there's a different consciousness possessing your body, right? And it's brilliant because they use the, the word possessor, right? And yes. it has such a spiritual implication because... I was thinking it would be more, you know, I, I saw sci-fi and I was like, okay, I, I'm curious, you know, I thought it would, but, but it wasn't supernatural and they used the tech, so more of a technological mm-hmm. explanation for things, right? But 
it does beg the question at the, at the end of the day, like, is your consciousness your body or, you know what Your I mean? memory? Because, right. And, and, and because there has to be a biological, I, I, I truly believe that there's a biological element to consciousness for sure. Yeah. But, um, but at the same time, right, it's, because there's often times where it's quite simply, when you, after you do something, we're like, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that, right? I didn't mean to do that. Yes. That wasn't me. Yes. Right? And, 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 and the, 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 the idea of, well, when are you you, right? Even beyond the idea that something can possess you, but when are you you? And, and, and again, it's, it's, we could talk about this in circles, I think, too, right? But, but it goes back to the, the quite important thing that you were talking about in your work as a social worker, right? Is, mm-hmm. And, like... Are we a product, are our decision a product of our, um, our environment and the, the way that we were raised yeah. or societal influences, right? If, and it's always a funny conversation is that if you were born in a different era, who would you be? Or, would you be you the know, same person? Right, or if you yeah. were born in the other, on the other side of town. Exactly. Right, city, right? Could you, or would you be the same person? Right? Absolutely. I love that question. And it also kind of leads to this, like, this very uncomfortable question of like, and I think all humans can relate to feeling like, oh God, I wish I hadn't done that. Or why did I make that decision? Right? Like that's a kind of a human experience. And I think that the fact that that's a human experience lends itself to the question of like what creates us and like, why do we make decisions? Because we often make decisions that are against our best interest. So if we're just talking about like survival of the fittest, which I understand it's like a very important biological way to understand life. It doesn't actually apply to humans in the same way. Like it actually doesn't, it doesn't tell the whole story because we constantly make decisions that are against survival, against our best interests. And, and I have like a member of my family who I love has disassociative identity disorder. And so if you are talking about disassociative identity disorder, one thing that happens is that, like your brain in order to protect you kind of harnesses your consciousness and and puts it in like a in a protective space and then creates a different consciousness to protect your main consciousness right so that sometimes what happens is people don't understand so for my family member um if my family member's triggered by something that is stemming from her childhood trauma she will kind of like um or she would before she got some support, she would have um, a complete break where she would kind of become another person. And that person um, would help her survive those issues. And then ultimately, when that person left, she would not have memories of that person. She would not have memories of what happened when she was having the discussion or when like that person was trying to help her survive. And I think that's such a great picture. It's such a great way that I think a lot of people with mental health diagnoses can identify with of I did something that doesn't feel like it was me. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think addiction sees the same thing. Like Socrates looked at addiction and said, that's not you. If you're blackout drunk, that's not you. Right. Right. Yeah, that's mean, not your we consciousness. Could, we could even just talk about blackout drunk. Right. And Absolutely. The things that happen to you. And yeah. And you make decisions that don't make sense to your, to your sober conscious brain. Right. 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 And I think a lot of people in addiction but can that's I still part of who you are. But that, because you, still you, it. It. <laughs> you still did it. You still did it. And so at what point do you have like accountability for that? 
even though like you may not have done that if you were sober or if you had your full access to your full consciousness, right? In those moments. And then the question rises, why do we want to break from our own consciousness? Yeah. You know, that's part of the, part of the motivation to substances. Exactly. Exactly. And like, and for Tessa, I think in the movie, like part of her motivation was this was her job. Um, and it becomes clear, like one of the little details that we get about her job is that she is very well financially compensated mm. for her job, right? So we know that she gets like stock options and she gets tons of money for doing what she's doing. And we also know that it's a huge risk to her brain in yeah. her body, right? Like there's a chance that she could incur brain damage and ultimately she does. Yeah. Um, and so what, like for her, is this just a job? Is, right. she, is it just a means to an end? Is she doing this as a way to sacrifice kind of her present for like some more palatable future? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And what kind of future does she want? Because the other thing I freaking loved was at the end when, you know, ultimately her husband and her son are killed. Yeah. And in the end, they showed this kind of beautiful way of showing the fractured consciousness of Colin and Tessa both having their hands on the gun. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you think and Tessa's telling Colin the whole time as she presents within his consciousness, yeah. she's saying like, no, this was always you. Yeah. And he's saying, this is what you always wanted. Your husband was holding your back. And she doesn't really fight that. Right. Because at the end when they when they both because again, spoiler, but it, it's revealed that um, her boss, I guess, or her handler is possessed. Her son. son. And, Ira, yeah. And when they both are extracted from those bodies, the, the look that they give each other is, it, it, it's, they're both at peace with it, actually. It's, they both it, accept it. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, that's not my interpretation, actually. It was, it was, only, it only, to me, it felt like that's what they both wanted. Yeah. Or they realized that that's what they wanted. At, yeah. Um, or, and I think it's complicated, right? Because I think her boss is pushing an agenda, mm-hmm. but she... I think I, I, I think then you're right. They're, she then accepts it, but I think she's actually she more than just accepts it and is at peace with it. But I think she ultimately realizes after the decisions made for her actually that that that's what she wanted. Absolutely, and I love like because she kind of struggled because she struggled. in the beginning she was separated from her husband already, you know. And and it, 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 I think the movie makes you think that it's because her husband didn't want her there but actually it was i think her that left yeah yeah it was her that like has a different place to live we know that and her husband says like i want you to move back i hate this yeah and and so you you're starting to ask this question and i love that narrative like especially with women (laughs) this narrative of like like could she is there a, a universe where she could socially choose her career over her husband and her child? Right. And no, there isn't really, right? Yeah, they, because she created that child. That. Exactly. Yeah. She created that child. She has she has a responsibility to that child and her husband, mm-hmm. whether or not she's separated. And and I think throughout the movie, you see that she has an emotional connection to her husband. Mm-hmm. Like they have sex. They like talk. She doesn't. She sees him bleeding out, and she like is kind of horrified by that, yeah. right? So I think she has a very strong emotional connection, but ultimately she couldn't face the fact that what she wanted was to be free of her familial, familial like responsibilities. Right. And so ultimately, I think when 
like her boss kills her child and her husband. It's this question of like, yeah, is this what she really wanted? And and she seems very calm and at peace with it. You know, she seems like like at the end when like kind of the final scene where they're doing kind of a reality test with her and she doesn't seem to be brain damaged in the way that they had feared. Mm -hmm. They give her the butterfly Right. And she says, this is my butterfly. I, I killed it and mounted it when I was a kid. She says nothing of the guilt she talked about before. Mm -hmm. She says nothing about the shame. And there's this kind of feeling that she feel, that she has come to a different place with it than she had yeah. prior. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is really powerful. And powerful to say that she had sacrificed her family, you know, for this this identity that she now had as this, as this person, this possessor. Right. Um, and that's just, there's so many layers to it that I really appreciated. And then in the end too, one of my favorite scenes was when Colin lied dying next to Ira, her son, mm -hmm. who she killed. And they do this flash where they show like Tess is the one actually killing Ira. Mm -hmm. Um, and, they show them both bleeding out, Colin and Ira, and then they show their blood m meeting. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also like a powerful thing because at what point is she choosing herself over her family? And at what point is she choosing to kill that part of herself? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because her son is ultimately a part of her. Yeah. And I think that sh that visualization with the blood kind of shows that like there was also a part of her that was dying, mm -hmm. right? There was a part of her that was like somehow lost in yeah. this experience yeah. and what I what I love too is she knew she needed a break from the beginning yeah. <laughs> she was saying like I need a break I need a break um, and then ultimately she was so kind of like discontented at home with Michael with her husband and yeah. with her son so she, takes so she calls she calls and she seeks out the next assignment right, right? Okay. and that to me like I mean, it makes me think of a million things, but one of them is like this feeling like when we're, in, when we're very anxious, anxiety tells us that something needs to be done. Something needs to be fixed. We need to do something immediately to not feel anxious anymore. Yeah. And um, like, unfortunately, like in mental health, we talk about it a lot that, that actually distracting yourself or avoiding the anxiety feels good in the moment, but ultimately makes the anxiety more powerful, mm -hmm. right? Because you keep avoiding it without confronting it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, for her, maybe it would have been more helpful or maybe, like, if I was her shrink, like, I mean, I would be outmatched. But I also think, like, if I was, like, her therapist, I'd be saying, like, maybe take a break. Maybe, like, face this, this intense anxiety and this discontent that you have yeah. and ask questions about it before taking on another assignment because... I think ultimately what happened was it was harder and harder for her to find herself within her anxiety and within her experiences as someone else. Mm -hmm. And this person who felt guilty for killing a butterfly was now an assassin ultimately. And just because she was using like a different like corporal form to commit the murders mm -hmm. didn't mean she wasn't committing them. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for her, it was like, cause even I would, I think that's, yeah. It like I mentioned earlier, it was clear cut for me. It was yeah. Like, yeah. She's using the bodies of other people to kill other people, you know. But mm -hmm. and again, we we discussed the <laughs> intricacies of that. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. I really I I like that kind of that whole narrative because, you know, like I said, it comes back to the question of like what makes us an individual, mm -hmm. right? Like, 
you know, identical twins are still individuals. What right. makes them an individual? It's right. something internal, right? It's yeah. like their experience, it's their memories, but also something else. Mm-hmm. And what is that? Yeah. Right? We don't really have a great definition for human consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we try to define it as, like, your personality, which is kind of an amorphous term. Right. Or, like, your memories are often thought of as, like, very important to, like, forming who yeah. you are as a person, your experiences. But that's not it. Because, yeah. like, because you exist even apart from that. Right. Right? There's something right. that even if you had different experiences and had different memories, you would still be there. Yeah. So what part of you would be the same right. if you had a different life? Like, what part of your consciousness would be similar and what part would be different? Yeah. And I really like that story. I like that question. And who are you, like, in the minds of other people, too? Because, yes. like, you know, even going back to... Who would they prosecute, right? Ultimately, not ultimately, but like in this kind of thing, right? Like mm-hmm. it would be, would have been Colin that would have been locked up or, you know, yeah, for, for this crime. And I mean, sure, if they found out that there was some company, but, you know, like who are you in the minds of other people and mm-hmm. all those sort of things. And oftentimes, like, we don't necessarily discipline people to stop violence. We discipline people to feel like we have some control over our experience, yeah. right? And so I, um, when I worked for, like, a nonprofit that, it was a legal nonprofit that worked to prosecute folks who had um, perpetrated war crimes on other people. What they went for, they didn't go for the person that pulled the trigger. They didn't go for the person that actually committed the torture, mm-hmm. Right. They believed in command responsibility, which mm-hmm. meant that they wanted the people who gave the order to do those things. Right. And when we look at things like in the United States that have happened, where like the United States have perpetrated war crimes, as defined by the Geneva Convention, the United States, like in Abu Ghraib, right, which is like one of our biggest kind of like um, <laughs> experiences with trying to prosecute things that were horrible that happened, mm-hmm. who was prosecuted were the people who actually did the action on the ground, Mm. right? Because what they, what kind of the narrative about that was, was we're going to prosecute these lower level offenders because they're the ones that did the crime. And we're going to say like, oh, these privates, right, Right. were were in control and they did the thing. And so they should be prosecuted. But ultimately, like when I look at that and I see who gave the order, I think a lot of what happens in boot camp or in military training is that you are kind of like your fight or flight they had a lot of psychologists that helped them kind of create this, this, um, this training. And ultimately, they were trying to reroute people's fight or flight mechanism or their trauma response mechanism so that they would charge up instead mm-hmm. of get smaller. Because if you have a, a flight response in combat, you're going to fucking run. Yeah. And nobody wants that if you're a commander, right? Yeah. And so they try to make it so that you don't run. And then they also just reemphasize over and over and over again, if you don't follow orders, your friends will die you will die, right? right? And so when I look at that, I see, like, the mechanism that ultimately led to the abuses at Abu Ghraib was completely disregarded. And it wasn't because we wanted to stop what was happening. It was because we knew somebody had to pay for it. And so we took the low-level targets and made them pay for it. But ultimately, who was responsible? So these corporate overlords and possessor, right, are ultimately responsible not only for like the use of technology but for the direction of technology because yeah. Tessa didn't choose who the people were that she was going right, to possess. Right. She's she, the trigger man. She's the trigger man. She's the hitman, right? 
Um, and it wasn't that she had some personal vendetta against them, but she followed the orders. Yeah. So is she culpable for following orders? Absolutely. And I, yeah. obviously she's not innocent, yeah. but does she have the same amount of responsibility? Right. right. As the people who directed mm -hmm. this process to happen. Yeah. Like, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but again, it comes up with that like question of like, at what point are we responsible? Like yeah. at what, what do we have control over? And for her to say, like, I'm going to take this job that pays very well at the expense of other people. Right. Like, is that okay? Probably not. Right. Yeah. Like I'm going to go with no on that. <laughs> um, but, but also like, it's just a very confusing question because she's not herself committing these crimes. She's right. using someone else's body. And so there's some sort of disassociation there yeah. that gives her some sort of like moral or conscious, like distance from Human what's drones. going on. Human drones, baby. <laughs> Human drones. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And I, I thought that they were able to portray all of these questions in an indirect way, in kind of a subtle way mm -hmm. that made it more human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, I, I was so, you were, while we were watching this, you were getting more and more excited. And I mean, I loved the movie. It was great. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, you know, come from a design background. And, and so, um, and, and I see part of my role in, in this podcast as somebody that instigates the conversation, but, yeah. um, but I, I had no idea what, what, what we were going to talk about. Um, oh really? Yeah, I really didn't. Um, yeah. cause, and again, I enjoyed the movie a lot. It's, also, it's a beautiful fucking movie. They, it is beautiful. They use a lot of really good, um, they have a lot of really good shots and it's aesthetically consistent. Um, and you know, even like we said, right, they use a lot of different techniques to be able to portray the blurriness of who is who, yeah. who is who is in control, and those sort of things, and so, but yeah, and and, and again, I saw you you were increasingly more excited. And I so was, jazzed! I was, I was yelling at the TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, cause I, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by like why we do i mean the question ultimately and why i work with veterans primarily is like and i think it got started when i was working at the organization that um tried to prosecute like war criminals right mm -hmm. yeah i think the ultimate question came for me like how can humans do these horrible things to each other yeah what makes us do that right and i'm not right. i'm not as interested as like in the narrative or like the the folks that don't have the empathy or have like like the sociopathy or like the psychopathy or the antisocial right. personality disorder i'm not as interested in that i'm interested in like people who actually uh, i mean that's fascinating on its own and it's part of the human experience and it's very valuable but also like the folks that have guilt and shame yeah and have like a deep compassion for other people. Like what makes us do horrible things to each other? Yeah, I mean, and, and um, you know, again, this podcast isn't linear or chron chronological, but in the recent one that we did um, about, uh, I think it House of the Thousand Corpses. Yeah. Um, but it's a common thing that we talk about, right? It's, um, yeah, like where's your responsibility or. What makes you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What makes you do that? You know, and, and, and you talked a lot about, you know, the, the sort of guilt and because I think part of the older way of depicting 
fucked up things that happened, the mm-hmm. older way that we wanted to understand that was, oh, it, it's something that we don't understand, and it's there's something inherently defective about somebody. But you constantly talk about a lot of the veterans that you work with, and, and all the... I mean, part of what fucks them up is the guilt and the shame that goes with it, right? Because, you know, um, the, we, I think we like... We almost like and rely on the idea of uh, antisocial... Absolutely, because it fits. Yeah, it's easy. It's, it's our easy way out, right? Mm-hmm. It's, oh, there's... Because it's almost our way of saying you're defective in a way. And exactly. And so you couldn't help but do that because mm-hmm. you were defective. And so we'll just leave it at that, right? But most people that commit horrible things, you know, aren't defective, right? Yeah. In terms of war crimes Brain or whatever. Brain or whatever. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, because there's plenty of, you know, you could, you could listen to, you could watch something else. You could watch Mindhunter or something if you wanted to, if you wanted to get a glimpse of, you know, how sociopaths, I'm using your quotes, uh, <coughs> operate Excuse or whatever, right? And, that, but, and I think that's fascinating in itself, like you said, but ultimately what is scarier, scarier for us to interrogate um, it as sort of people who are empathetic um, is how do we get there? Yes. How does somebody that is maybe similar to my background or 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 does feel guilty about things or does feel shame about these things or has the possibility to do that, um, how do they get there then, right? Because, and, and I think one thing that's really important to me as, uh, as a person is to constantly remind myself, like, a lot of the horrific evils that you see in the world don't act like that, don't act like you might not ever get there. Preach! Like, um, um, there, there's... There's a lot of different things that, uh, you know, and maybe this is too vulnerable, but, um, you know, my own upbringing was, uh, you know, my, my dad was a disciplinarian, so there's physical um, discipline. Uh, discipline involved, you know, and, 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 and I, I'm at peace with it, and, and, and I've resolved that with my dad and, and all yeah. those sort of things, you know, but, but um, it, what's funny is we, we have two little pets, the hellhound and the familiar and they've been little shits during this recording. Um, and, and I'm struggling. I struggle yeah. a lot because, because I all of a sudden realize what my dad must have went through or what was going on in his head when because when when I was being disciplined, right? Because you, you sort of then feel, oh, shit, I don't know what to do in this situation. Right. And you react sometimes or even the, how you feel like you want to react and I feel guilt and shame about it. And yeah. And, 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 and I actually have more empathy and understanding of where my dad was, right? And that, that frames my childhood in a different way. But um, yes, um, the, the recognition that it's not that everybody has the capacity. Well, I think we, everybody I has think the we capacity, have the capacity to do it. Yeah. yeah. I think ultimately really realizing that and, and that allows you to be more empathetic to, to people. But also it, it, it's a good exercise to constantly be interrogating what you're doing too right because ultimately we don't want to do horrific things right, right we want right. to we, we, we want to don't want to just say oh well we have an explanation of why but 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 it's it's the personal work of then being like okay well so 
So what is my response? What can be yeah. my responsibility yeah. in, in the things that we do? And and not I'm not even talking about whether to kill somebody or not, right? Yeah. But it's little things. Is how you react to people at the store or, or totally. how do you react to somebody that slighted you or something like that, right? Or how you reacted to somebody that you perceived slighted you or something like that. Yeah. You know? And and, and, and it's, a, it's a really good reminder of, yeah, like, you know, we can have a little more compassion for people that have done fucked up things, right? Mm-hmm. Because, listen, at the end of the day, sure, you didn't do anything, but you're also not really about that because we're all made from the same flesh. Yeah. We're all actually more similar than we are not. And so you constantly have to be, I think, exploring that. And, yeah, that's... Totally. That's I, I agree. And I, you know, to match your vulnerability a little bit, like, I think... For me, you know, growing up, I had tons of trauma, you know, until middle adulthood, I had tons of trauma. Humanity, being a human in this world, has tons of trauma, whatever. But I think initially it was more empowering for me to see the people that perpetrated this trauma on me as powerful Mm. and different from me in some way. And the older I get and the more trauma work I do for myself, the more I realize, like, actually, it's a little, it's more uncomfortable, Mm-hmm. to recognize that people can be pushed to do terrible things and that yeah. I am also a person that could be pushed to do terrible yeah. things. And not even It's more uncomfortable that yeah. way to think about it like that than it is to think like, oh, these people are monsters. Mm-hmm. And as the incomparable Jessica Lange said in American Horror Story that I've quoted now a million times, all monsters are human. Like, I think this idea of our humanity, it's this constant struggle between survival and helping other people survive, right? And being a part of like a social environment and a social community. So um, we joke about this all the time, but me as an individual, like theoretically I'm a pacifist. And I say that (laughs) because like I have the desire to be an ultimate pacifist, right? Mm -hmm. But also with the full, full knowledge that I love people fiercely and if someone hurt someone that I loved, like I could very easily see a scenario where I would resort to very cruel violence, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that's a part of me, and I think that that's where a lot of guilt and shame comes with being a human, is because we have these horrific thoughts or desires mm-hmm. or, like, impulses, right, that are a part of being a natural fucking human on this earth, but we fight them because we're horrified by them. Right. And ultimately, like, the recognition that that exists within us, yeah. and that's part of our humanity and that we can be like supportive and kind and like compassionate, even having those thoughts or those impulses. Mm -hmm. Like that's a much more difficult narrative than there are good people and there are bad people. Right. Right. And so often we get, we fall into this narrative of some people are terrible and some people are good and I'm a good person. And then like, that's a very shaky pedestal to put yourself on because as soon as you fuck up, then you're thinking, oh, no, maybe I'm a bad person, right? right yeah. And it's not binary like that. Like, yeah. human experience isn't binary like that. We can do terrible things and be compassionate, loving people. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of people that have done horrible things, and if you ask them at an earlier point in their lives, could you ever imagine yourself doing this, they'd probably say no. Absolutely. Never. Absolutely. That's not me. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what I think I got so excited about for this movie. Um, and, and also, like... You know, like I said earlier, like this, I think this has a really strong parallel to the Black Mirror episode Crocodile, because in that in that episode, the main character who plays Tessa in Possessor is 
did a horrible thing that she was ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to outrun that horrible thing mm -hmm. by making it like not happen, by destroying the evidence. Mm -hmm. And it ultimately leads her to do so many more horrible things, right? right? Yeah. Um, and that is, like she is in that episode, she is like a villain. Like you look at her and you, like I hate her in that episode. Mm -hmm. um, but you see how she gets there. Yeah. And it's the same in Possessor. Like, yeah. you see that she's doing these horrific things that are destroying people's lives, but you see how she gets there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that is something I'm in love with in movies. And what one of the things that I love about horror movies is because it harnesses that question of, like, what are we going to do to survive? Yeah. And at what... At what point are we, like, what are we willing to sacrifice for that? Yeah. For either that survival or that picture of the life that we want. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Like, whatever that is. If it's survival or if it's, like, success or money or whatever. Yeah. Like, at what point are we willing to sacrifice other people or other things in our life for whatever we're pursuing? And that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also why I think you're a champion of a, of a lot of vilified Characters. I love villains. <laughs> I love villains. Yeah, because you, because it's not just it doesn't just stop there, right? To to try to identify with how you survive, because that that's pro protagonist, right? Because right. you have yeah, to be yeah, able to apply right. the same right. mental exercise to the villains in a lot of these movies, right? And um, I mean, I think that's kind of why, on a surface level, I'm interested in antiheroes, but mm -hmm. but with a lot of horror movies it's easy to say oh that's the evil guy because that's the guy that's chasing the people <laughs> but then i think the more interesting ones and again going back to if you guys have listened to the house of a thousand corpses right it's sort of like where i think it and again i think it's a different type of movie but mm -hmm. um it doesn't provide a lot of explanation of why the bad guys are the way that they are yeah, you know? and, yeah. and i think uh, and again it, it, it's a different movie but um some of the richer ones, I think, do end up explaining, like, well, this is why the baddie is the, the baddie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I and I like that because I think the reason why I'm attracted to more villains is because for the victims or the protagonists, it's easy to find their humanity. <laughs> and for me, like, I want to be able to find the humanity in the people that, like, other people kind of dismiss the humanity of. Because, yeah. I, because for me, I think it tells a lot about the human experience and, like, human identity or what, whatever yeah. we are, you know, whatever kind of mammal we are. Yeah. I think it tells a lot about us by who we portray as villains. Yeah. 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 Who do you think you are in the movie? You know, I think the ultimate question is, actually, I, th I don't. I think we should limit the 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 options for this question. Are you Tessa or are you Colin? Love it. Right? Love it. I, I mean, I think I identify more with Colin because, and I, I wonder what that says about me, right? Because I th thought, damn, this dude was like really powerless in all this. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, and I think ultimately he is, but, um, and so I'm going to take the easy way out and say, yeah. I'm calling because it's just, it sucks for him, right? And you're a fighter. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm Tessa 100%. Like, from the go, I was like, yep, that's my bitch. And the reason is, like, and I think part of that horrifies me, right? Because I never want to be the person that, like, is is doing that or, like, submits to being that, having that role in life. But I also think, like, I identified with her internal struggle yeah. 
and her conflict mm -hmm. and then ultimately like her kind of going along with something and trying to kind of buck up and make it work right, you know yeah. and i think ultimately it is a great question of who was in control colin or tessa but i think neither of them were but you know again i think your your answer right is 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 you've done the exercise of of realizing that you can be capable of horrible things in yeah. order to survive or or to get what you want or whatever it is right and and that it's not and because again Mine is kind of the, 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 the basic one of not wanting to admit that I could be capable yeah. of horrible, horrible things. But ultimately, you know, because Tessa is an employee, right? right. She, she wasn't one of the higher-ups, right. like, like we said, right? right? She's the trigger man. And so um, it's, yeah, I think that it's... it's it's big of you to be able to admit that. Well, <laughs> I, think, I think part of it, too, is like... and it's inextricable from my experience with trauma because I experienced trauma as a very young age, like initially. And I started like my first kind of symptom, like just to be vulnerable and to be honest and why I am the matron saint of nightmares is like starting at like six years old, I started to have night terrors. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who don't know the difference between nightmares and night terrors, night terrors are, it's like this fabulous combination between sleepwalking and nightmares. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of times it's, so it's, it's ultimately biologically, um, a function of your brain, not telling your body that it's asleep. Mm -hmm. Right. And so your body's kind of acting out these nightmares or like, or responding in a way that's like kind of difficult. Right, right. So from the time I was a really little kid, possessor. possessor, exactly, exactly. And that's what it felt like as a kid. Right. So I felt like I was like possessed, like how did I get in the kitchen, you know, at 3am or whatever. So I would often like wake up like mid doing something. Luckily for me, a lot of the things that I'd be doing were like really bizarre. Like I would have a horrible nightmare about people getting killed and then I would wake up bleaching the floor. Fuck. I know it's like horrifying, right? But I'm really lucky that I like woke up bleaching the floor and not like walking out into the street or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Or trying to fight somebody. Yeah. Um, and so that for me was this really profound experience of like, oh God, like what is going on in my subconscious? And I think that led me to do like a lot of like therapy <laughs> early on to try to figure out like, okay, what's my brain telling me? And ultimately I think what my brain was trying to tell me by all of these violent dreams and these like night terrors, um, like waking up screaming or whatever is, um, is that there was something in me that wanted to survive. And even though I was around a lot of violence and when I had my own consciousness, I completely rejected violence. I was never violent. I was the peacemaker. I was constantly like trying to keep the violence moderated. Ultimately, internally and subconsciously, something in me wanted to survive, mm -hmm. right? My subconscious wanted to survive. And so it kind of it interpreted the situation as you have to fight to survive. Mm -hmm. So all of my dreams were around like fighting or violence, mm -hmm. right? And I was the perpetrator of those violence, that violence in my dream. Right. Because it was a way of my subconscious trying to give me control over the things I didn't have control over in my day-to-day -day life. Yeah, got it. And so as an adult looking back on that, it made it kind of, I'm lucky in that it made it impossible for me to separate myself from the desire to survive and what that would cost. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that that gave me 
I think it was a blessing. It gave me a lot of insight, gave me a lot of anxiety and a lot of issues, but it also gave me a lot of insight into like who I am as a person and trying to grow to accept those impulses or those things, those thoughts that I don't like or that are horrifying to mm-hmm. me. And like ultimately now I'm like so thankful for my nightmares yeah. because I think that there were a way that I was trying to talk to myself about how I could survive unsurvivable situations, right? How I could find some sort of like fight within me or some sort of going onness within me when I didn't feel it consciously day to day, right? So it was my body, my brain, my subconscious, my consciousness in some way telling me like, like, no, we're here and we're not going anywhere. Right. Like, we're going to subsist. We're going to survive this. And, and that is, like, a, a really beautiful thing that I think fear can give us. It can give us an insight into, like, what are we willing to do to survive and how, how can we imagine surviving mm-hmm. things that are difficult. And that's why I'm obsessed with horror. That's why I'm obsessed with like fear and nightmares and trauma, right? Is because I think it, for me, connects to like my ultimate humanness and my ultimate like existential question of like, what are we doing floating on a rock in space? And that's why I love this movie is because I think it really confronted that. And why I got so psyched up about it is because I think it it didn't shy away from that question. Mm -hmm. And it didn't shy away from the question either of like who's deserving of survival. Right which I, I love. I think it's very complex. So, big fan. And yeah, I'm Tessa man. <laughs> well, I just wanted to thank you guys for sticking with us. This is yeah. probably one of our longest episodes. Um, and uh, I wanted to thank the matron for her vulnerability, but also- And the acolyte for his. Appreciate that. But um, yeah, especially to the listeners, if you guys made it this far, I, I hope you guys got something from it. and. Uh, Hopefully, if you've watched the movie already, too, because, you it's know, awesome. I, 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 it's our hope that you guys watch the movies before you're listening, because then you can kind of join us in the sort of, uh, and of course, I, I know plenty of my friends that listen are just interested in what we have to say, and, and, and not our, I mean, the horror genre, I think, isn't for everybody. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Listen. But, um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us. Yeah. With that, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams. <laughs>